What is up, everybody? It's me. It's me. It is Mr. Sensational Gino V, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with another very special episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. This would be episode 73. Now, you didn't hear an episode last week. You are hearing one this week. It's actually the flip of how things were supposed to go, because I intended to record and release episode 73 last week and then um, go on vacation and take a hiatus from the show this week. Instead, I had some unexpected plans come up in the midst of recording last week, so I wasn't able to get an episode out on time, but what I did is I finished it, and now I'm presenting it to you this week while I'm actually not here. I'm actually... Um, in the state of Hawaii, um, as you're listening to this, not as I'm recording this, but as you're listening to this, I am, I am no longer on the continental United States. I'm over in Hawaii. Um, I don't even know, I don't don't know what I would be doing, what I am doing as you're listening to this. I'm doing something. Um, I don't really plan on doing much of anything when I go there, just eat some, some, uh, some of the pan-Asian cuisine that exists on the island and just kind of kicking back for a week. And, yeah, that's that. Um, not going to see me doing any of that extracurricular stuff some people do when I when they go to Hawaii. There's any, not going to be any snorkeling, not going to be any scuba diving, not going to be any, any swimming in the ocean. Um, we're uh, purposely staying in Honolulu versus one of the more... Uh, Everyone keeps saying when I tell them I'm going, oh, are you going to Maui? Oh, heck no. If you think I'm going to Maui, you know very little about Mr. Sensational Gino Vega because I'm not there for the wildlife. And I, I've been to Hawaii before, and there's plenty, plenty of wilderness, plenty of wildlife even on, on uh, in Honolulu in the heart of it all. But, you know, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega is a city dweller at heart. So um, I just want to... Um, Relax in a place that's not my home, that I don't have to constantly be cleaning up after myself every second when I'm trying to kick back and where I can um, eat like some noodles or something. Um, so that's about the size of it. I guess I could probably just eat. Well, I know I couldn't do that here because I have to be cl- cleaning up after myself. Hence the hence the going on, on, on a trip, going on vacation. I don't know. I haven't been on, on many trips or vacations in the last few years for obvious reasons. I think during the height of pre-vaccine COVID, we took one trip. We went to Palm Springs, mainly to go hike out in the desert. So I guess I'm, I'm lying when I say I, I don't go for the wilderness stuff, because I actually actively went there to go hike in the desert. But I don't know. I don't know. Don't expect consistency here in the Vegaverse. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up this episode. I'm sending it in. You will hear it um, when you hear it, and I will be out of here. And so what are we talking about on this very special episode 73. Why are we talking? Why are we here? I have no idea. I don't know, man. But we are here. Um, Oh, I guess we are continuing the riveting tale. The absolutely riveting tale from episode 73, in which I was describing my time at the job that I had after that iconic job at uh, the United Artists Cinema 6 movie theater where I met Icy Robots. We were talking about my time working at Super Crown Bookstore in Santa Rosa, California, in the Santa Rosa Marketplace on Santa Rosa Avenue, and I was talking about what kind of, from a worker's perspective, just kind of a dismal affair it was, just slinging 
New York Times bestseller books, self-help books, um, uh, political crank books um, to angry hordes of belligerent customers. Um, And for my first spell there at that job, that's pretty much what I did. I just stood behind the counter, took abuse, rung up people's books. Um, um, My first few months there, something interesting happened. I received, it must have been like, you know, six months, because I don't know what other interval they would have done this at, but I got like this this uh, X amount of months into the job performance review. And um, I was kind of sweating it, because like I said, my only really in, real interaction of note with the store manager, Connie, to that point had been when she got all, flew off the handle because I was too too sick to get up to call myself, uh, to call in sick to work, and my mom uh, called in, and she thought it was some immature ruse on my part, but really, I, I was really and truly on death's door, and that was the only way to get the message to her that I would not be able to be there at my just barely above minimum wage job um, that day. Um, so I, I was kind of sweating the evaluation, but then when the evaluation happened, it was her and it was the assistant store manager, Linda, um, and they gave me this glowing review, and I had no idea. I didn't realize that my efforts to um, to please the belligerent masses had gone over so well with management. So I, I got top marks and was just a, a star, super crown book uh, store employee. So I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, but shortly after that, it's kind of funny. One of the weird things about this job is looking back, I, I guess I could probably piece it together, but I, I have no idea how long I actually worked at that store. I, and I think I talked about this last time, because time is so different. You know, I was in my early 20s back then, so a year is like a decade, you know, because you're still young and impressionable and, and all of that. You're not a jaded old person like myself now. Um, but I think it's fair to say I probably worked there for about two years, but it's interesting how much things change before, say, or change between, say, the first six months and then the rest of my time there. Because when I began that job and the store was new, um, everything in that quadrant of the, the Santa Rosa Marketplace, which is essentially a strip mall, or not a strip, it's like a big, sprawling, big box, uh, collection of big box retailers with uh, Costco, a Costco warehouse store is like the anchor tenant. Um, the Costco had been there, and then everything around Super Crown and all that was new. Not that the Costco was old, but the Costco went in first, and we were all part of the second wave. So when that second wave was new, there was a lot of fanfare around it. And for instance, um, when Crown opened, you know, we would were visited by the CEO and given this big talk about how, uh, you know, this store was very important to, to the Crown brand, and there was going to be a loss prevention officer who was a former... Uh, Secret Service uh, member who was going to be monitoring to the store to make sure we didn't steal anything, and he at any given time could be sitting out in the parking lot with binoculars, and it just seemed like a very highly regulated, tightly managed um, uh, outfit with a lot of expectations. And similarly, with like you know, I mentioned you know the Target had this big shiny Great Land sign, and we were super Crown books, and there was just a lot of like. Just this is like retail on steroids. This is like some next level stuff. That all really lasted at most, at most six months before the place just went 
really derelict, really feral as far as, as um, connections to the to the greater corporate overlords of each of the locations. Um, you know, the, the target has long since just become a regular old target. I mean, it's still there. It's still doing its thing because it's target. But yeah, all, all that all that pomp and circumstance of Great Land evaporated into the ether. Um, Super Crown, the loss prevention guy was seen maybe once, never seen again. And then it was a free for all for take as much as you want to read home anytime you want. Not that I would ever do such a thing, but it just it became very, again, very feral, very, um, the... Soon, the the adult magazines that I mentioned last episode stopped having the security tags in them, and the the weird little pedal thing that we had to use to disable them was long forgotten. Um, things really just kind of devolved at a rapid rate, to where again it just really was this collection of discounted books that angry people were coming to to buy for the most part. Um, and in that de-evolution. Um, the store manager we had, the woman named Connie, who was kind of like a stereotypical person you would expect to be managing a bookstore, but more like a Barnes and Noble bookstore. She was kind of this book, serious bookish lady. Um, she got out of there real quick. She was gone. Um, she was replaced by the assistant manager, Linda, who now was um, be, uh, became the store manager. Linda was a working class lady who I mentioned last time smoked unfiltered camel cigarettes. Um, Definitely, you know, she was just she was a retail lifer. She wasn't there because it was books. She could just as well be store managing or assistant store managing any kind of big box store, any kind of retail establishment. Um, but because I'd gotten good marks in that initial evaluation, I started off in Linda's good graces when she became the store manager. And so periodically there was this task that had to be done at Super Crown Books. Uh, which was called returns. Like we, there were certain books had to do with like the way the book business worked. Certain stuff was still on the shelves. I hadn't sold. It could be sent back for some, I mean, I don't think that they got all the money back, but it's not like a comic book store or record store where you buy the inventory and then you're on the hook for all of it. And whether it sells or not, there's some deal in the, in the book industry where it's like you get to return certain amounts of unsold, um, merchandise for some kind of, uh, of, uh, kickback. So every now and again, clerks like myself would get sent around the store with a dot matrix, um, printout of books that needed to be taken off the shelf and returned to their publishers. And this certainly wasn't something that required anyone to be doing full time. You could probably, um, tear through this list, you know, in an hour. But, um, I kept getting myself on this duty and I would kind of stretch it out, and I'd go rap with other clerks that weren't weren't behind the uh, uh, counter at the moment. Because another thing you had to do is oftentimes new books would come in. The receiver, who I mentioned last time, was a guy named Wade who worked for the IRS. He um, would receive books in the back, and then these carts of books would come out, and they'd have to go onto the shelves. So some people would be shelving books. I'd be doing returns. I'd you know have fun uh, chatting with my my buddies, um, and. It got to the point where all I was ever doing was doing returns, even though this wasn't really a bona fide position at the store. But Linda, the store manager, saw that I enjoyed doing that. And she was just kind of like, hey, do you want to just do returns full time? And I was like, okay. So what this meant was um, 
No longer had to wear the tie. I would just show up in street clothes. I mentioned last time you had to wear a tie when you were working behind the counter at, at Super Crown Books, very classy establishment. Um, and it was kind of cool because I basically got paid to do nothing. But it was also um, very anxiety-inducing because I always, always felt at some point the gig is going to be up. At some point... This is gonna because a, a, a district manager would come in and evaluate the store. Sometimes she'd always kind of be mad dogging me, and I was like, at some point she's gonna figure out this isn't on the up and up, you know. But I kept doing it anyway, and that's kind of a been a ongoing theme for me in workplaces is this. Um, I guess the, the best way I can describe it, um, there's a author named William T. Volman, if I have the name correct, if my if memory serves me correctly. And William T. Volman, I believe, wrote his first novel while working some uh, corporate office type job, but he just essentially wasn't doing his work. He was writing the novel. And that image always really stuck with me because I feel like I've had at least a couple jobs over the course of my job history where I was doing that, where I was just kind of under the radar I wasn't actually doing what I was supposed to be doing, but there's still I'm I'm still working there. So it's this bizarre half life. So on one hand, you're 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 getting one over on the man. On the other hand, you're in this perpetual state of anxiety because you know that this is too good to be true. This can't possibly go on like this forever. But it went on like that for quite a while, and eventually, you know, that original staff kind of turned over, and we got into this um, era where there was a new assistant store manager, a guy named Doug, who I became pretty close with. And I believe Wade, the IRS guy, left, and we got a new receiver, a guy named Mike, who we just dubbed the receiver. Mike was kind of a classic rock guy that had a band, um, but he was back there receiving the books. Um, There was another guy, Petros, who became a clerk that I kind of became friends with. Um, The geologist, who I mentioned last episode, he was an OG clerk. He was still around. Um, So I would just kind of come and do my returns thing and spent a lot of time in the back office chatting with the receiver, chatting with Linda. Uh, I smoked cigarettes back then, as, as did most of the people that worked there. So a lot of smoke breaks being taken. So it just became this very feral place where the, you know, the, 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 the lunatics were running the asylum, uh, so to speak. That's probably not an uh, acceptable turn of phrase anymore because it's probably denigrating people in an asylum. But you know what I it's just the, the the inmates had taken over and no and the store had been abandoned. The store seemed forgotten. There was no, you know, because the whole point of these corporate stores is they're all part of a larger organization. But I just felt like we were cut off. Just this kind of satellite that was decaying in orbit. Um but uh the group of us that were all friends there, a lot of us would start going out after work together. And this became kind of a painful learning moment for me because I had that job at a weird time in my life. Um, Prior to that job, when I was in high school and right after high school, I had a very grounded, um, like solid purpose in life. I uh, was in a punk rock band. I was in that band, The Invalids. I was going to see punk rock shows constantly. That was my world. That was my life. I had my high school group of friends. It all felt very secure. Once high school ended, you know, the band broke up. Um, The punk band Green Day, who was kind of the central band that uh, all the shows we went to in our area kind of rotated around, they became rich and famous and disappeared, nowhere to be seen again. 
local scene kind of fell apart. There wasn't weren't a lot of shows to go to anymore. Music in general really fell off because I, I remember they, someone would always be having the radio playing in the back uh, back room, the receiving area of Crown Books, and it was always like so depressing because we were just just a few years removed from this big renaissance of music. Because it's like I mean, obviously I was listening to a lot of like niche stuff that wouldn't necessarily be on the radio, but even stuff that was on that was kind of mainstream when I was in high school came from that niche world. You had, you know, your Nirvanas, you had all this kind of like renaissance of alternative music. Um, and now we're hearing like the, the third generation carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy of that music. And it was just so depressing because I remember, you know, on one hand, I felt that like that really close knit, tight knit social life that I had that was kind of like my what's that French word, like raison d'etre, you know, reason for being, I, I'm sure I didn't say that right. Um, that had gone by the wayside, and then even like the the mainstream music as I was hearing was depressing. So I, I remember at that time everything was like, um, oh god, that brutal song would play over and over on the radio back then. It was the like, I had sex and candy. It was the it was the the heyday of all those bands that were kind of doing this imitation of an imitation of an imitation of Eddie Vedder imitating Kurt Cobain. So I was like, and just like, oh my god, this is the worst. That oh that Carlos Santana duets album was big at the time. Um, so having to constantly hear the like, oh, just forget about it. So brutal, so depressing. But I thought maybe with this uh, group of coworkers that I was now rolling with, I, I'd found my new people, my new group. And we would go out and we would hang out together. And it was great and it was fun for a time. But, you know, one by one, someone would leave or someone like the guy Doug that I was tight with got a girlfriend and he was never seen again. And I, I just it was my first lesson. And particularly when once I left the job and I've never really spoke to any of those people again, there was an episode of NYPD Blue, the TV show NYPD Blue, in which um, there was that kind of doofy cop with the red hair. I'm not talking about the original uh, guy on the show, but the 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 um, he's, it was like a support character. Oh, gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, let me look this up real quick because it can drive me crazy. Aha! Per the Google machine, the individual I'm thinking of, the character was Detective Greg Metavoy, played by the great Gordon Clapp. But I remember at one point towards the end of the series, uh... Detective Greg Metavoy retires, and then there's the whole, like, oh, yeah, you should come by the, the station and say hi sometime, and he comes by, and he's trying to talk to people, and no one really sees him, and he's just kind of sitting there ignored, and he's sort of like, wow, once you leave, you really can't come back, and it's sort of like, I, I realize now that it's like that with every job. You may kind of maintain some tenuous uh, friendships with some people here and there, but for the most part... Once a job is over, whatever bonded group existed at that job or that you were part of, it kind of disappears, you know, vaporizes out into space because that thing that brought you together, which is that job, is no longer there to serve as the core. Um, but speaking of, because I hadn't left that job yet, um, the, the de-evolution continued in a very interesting way. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I kind of got into this cushy spot because I got along with the store manager, Linda. And there was a period of time in the beginning of Linda's tenure as store manager where it seemed like she just liked everyone. So she was she was just being cool to, to everyone who worked there. 
But come to find out, come to find out, Linda was kind of a classic um, autocrat type. She was kind of a classic Mr. Trump um, in that she wielded power and she was willing to use that power to make life good for you until there was a reason for her to either have a grievance against you, in which case that power was then turned against you, um, or it didn't even have to be something someone did. It's kind of in that Mr. Trump way, like, um, you know when Mr. Trump iced out that guy that used to be his attorney? What was this guy's name? Cohen or something? You know, Cohen was no longer useful, so Cohen was now iced out, and Linda was all about the ice out. So... Um, what I started to see is that um, people who were part of her, her inner circle, people who I thought were in tight with her, um, were kind of getting axed one by one. I don't mean necessarily axed like like fired, but just you know, out of the good graces to a point where they eventually would leave on their own because they realized there was no future left for them at Super Crown Books. So, for instance, I mentioned last episode there was. Um, a woman named Lynn who uh, worked at the store. And Lynn was the one that I originally thought was kind of this hippie lady, but she really was like a proto-mutant. Um, she, uh, I remember, uh, there was a thing going on in Santa Rosa at the time, and I experienced it at Crown, and then I experienced it again later when I worked at a place called Wolf Coffee. But for some reason at that time, um, in Santa Rosa, there's been different cycles over time where for some reason... Um, different refugee communities end up in Santa Rosa. And then eventually they disperse because people find cheaper places to live and work and go elsewhere. So for instance, when I was um, in elementary school, my mom was a teacher's aide at a school that had a critical mass of Cambodian kids there. And it was because, for whatever reason, I probably through how some program worked or something, um, there was a lot of Cambodian refugee um uh, housing taking place in Santa Rosa. It's kind of where everyone ended up. And then a lot of, they all kind of, not all, but I mean, a lot of people scattered to the winds because you could go work in Modesto or, you know, various, just places where it was cheaper to live and there was more kind of like farm jobs and this, that, and the third. Anyway, um, so at that time that I worked at Crown, there was a critical mass of Eritrean individuals, people from Eritrea. The guy Petros that I worked with uh, at uh, Crown was actually Eritrean, um, but I think he'd been in Santa Rosa for some time. But anyway, there, there's a, kind of a critical mass of Eritrean dudes, and you would see these guys around because a lot of them worked um, janitorially. They would get janitor jobs like at schools and such and office buildings, but they were newcomers, so the prime like daytime janitor jobs were already filled. So these guys almost to a one worked night jobs, night shifts. So you'd see these guys out and about um, because uh, I think sort of socializing in public, kind of cafe culture is part of that culture. So anytime you'd go to, um, like I said, later on, I worked at a coffee shop, Wolf, there was always this crew of reaching guys that would hang out there because it's like part of, you know, you go out, you hang out with your buddies, having coffee out in public. And these guys would sometimes come out and, and hang out and crown and like look at books and, and such. But anyway, it happened at the at Crown. It happened later at Wolf. For some bizarre reason, these sort of mutanty, Karen-y type uh, ladies are always very um, up in arms about why these dudes are are out in public. You know, um, I remember when I worked at uh, uh, Wolf, I'd often have some 
little old lady pulling me aside and be like, why don't these men have jobs? And it's like, well, they do, but they, <laughs> they work at night, so they're here on their time off. Um, I, I'm not sure how this is controversial, but I, I think the perception is that these guys are just getting some free ride uh, to do whatever they want, and while the rest of us have to work, they're just sitting around. One, one of the absolute dirt worst aspects of American culture is this um, everyone worrying about what someone else is getting or what someone else is doing. The proverbial, like, I saw someone using food stamps to buy a steak. I just think, don't, I'm sure there's, there's probably some story behind it. There's probably, do, worry about yourself. Worry about what you're doing. This, this constant antenna up for grievance about what someone else is getting. I, that's what, like what you're, you try to teach your four-year-old not to do. You know? <laughs> but we've got grown, grown uh, individuals out here still partaking in this behavior. But anyway, uh, this woman, Lynn, was very up in arms about um, what she perceived as, as uh, refugee groups getting a free ride here in the States while she had to work at Super Crown Books. But uh, anyway, uh, one night, Lynn and I were smoking. Um, to smoke cigarettes at Crown Books, you would go um, into the back office, into the receiving area, and then out the side door into this back parking lot where there was like a dumpster. We're out there smoking, and I think technically you weren't supposed to go out there and do that. Um, I think it was because in this case it was a night shift and we were closing. I think the store was closed and there was like cash register, you know, the money was out because we're counting the money and such, but whatever. I mean, it's one of those things like you weren't supposed to do it, but everyone did. We go out there to smoke and Lynn ends up tripping on some wood pallet and breaking her arm. So there was no way to cover up the fact that she was out there breaking her arm because she was doing something she wasn't supposed to do, which is leaving cash unattended in the office to go smoke out in the parking lot. So Linda had been good buddies with Lynn, but after that incident, Lynn was persona non grata and just like Linda, who herself smokes, smoked constantly out there, um, you know, just, just, threw Lynn to the wolves, the corporate wolves, because I think there was some some district manager action about that whole thing. Um, and just kind of acted like she'd never heard of anyone smoking out there before. I got spared. Like, she didn't bring up the fact that I was somehow covered up that I was back there. Um, and that's just how, that's how things work there. It was very interesting. I managed to maintain um, my spot in Linda's good graces well, meanwhile, um, much like um, when uh, Saddam Hussein took over in Iraq, you know, one by one, um, everyone else in the inner circle was executed. I mean, they weren't really executed, but you know what I'm saying. They were excommunicated, and then they eventually would get disgruntled and leave. Um, and I stuck, st- stuck it out there for quite some time. Just And, and then eventually, uh, you know, the gig was up. The district management did figure out that I was getting paid to do nothing, so I was made to go back on the cash wrap. And at that point, it was like, I think it's time to move on. I think it's time to find greener pastures. I also just flat out needed more money. And uh, I found out that there was a place in town, a place called AVE, Arterial Vascular Engineering, that made parts for uh, stents that they put in people's arteries or hearts or whatever after they've had a heart attack. A uh, big manufacturing plant that was paying like three times as much money and I could get a job there. And so that was my next move. And I remember Linda did not take it well, but I was on the way out, so there wasn't really enough time for me to get uh, executed. 
Um, and that was it. That was uh, the end of Crown. Um, truly excruciating, boring tale. I don't know why I shared it, but it was a, a, a snapshot in time, and it was part of the 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 um, pantheon of depressing retail jobs that I had uh, growing up. I'm sure there were some tidbits here and there that I forgot to tell, but such is life in the Vegaverse. The postscript of the story, the one thing that still causes me to cringe, as they say to this day, is um, at one point, as I mentioned, part of the reason I had to leave is I just needed more money. It, it paid like, you know, it, where, the, the, where the movie theater paid four twenty-five an hour, Crown paid maybe like five fifteen or something like that. And I was, Ms. S and I had moved into our own apartment and it just, it wasn't cutting it. Um, so at one point, so I found myself a little short on dough. I was going to the Santa Rosa Junior College at the time, and I think I didn't have enough money to pay my registration fees or something like that. And so um, the fellow Doug that I mentioned, who uh, was his assistant manager, I was like, hey, bro, is there any way I could borrow? It, it was some like paltry sum. It seemed like a lot at the time, but uh, you know, I think I borrowed like $100 from him or something like that. Um, I, I got you back. I'll pay you back. And he's like, oh, yeah, totally, dude. I don't even, you know, I, I'm kind of up right now. No rush. It's fine. So he loaned me the money. But then, like I said, he got this girlfriend, and we kind of didn't have a falling out, but it was just weird because he's one of these types of dudes. Like, you know, obviously, he's got to live his life. He's got to have a significant other. But, like, I never understand the the men or women or what have you that are not able to balance. Um, you know, it's, it's quite possible to have a significant other and still have friends. I mean, when people get on this weird silo couple thing. Um, but anyway, so he loaned me the money, but then I never really saw him again. Um, and then, you know, my financial fortunes improved. Um, I mean, not really, but I, I, they improved from the place of making like $5 an hour. Um, so I certainly at any given time could have come up with like a hundred dollars to pay him back. Uh, but again, I just, I never saw the guy. And then years later, um, where coincidentally I found myself working at another job where much like with the returns thing, I was working at a job where I wasn't really doing anything, but I was still getting paid. So I was having that feeling of at once, wow, score, but at, at the same time, just crippling anxiety that I was going to get found out. Um, he was in town. I like ran into him somehow and we were hanging out. Oh no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm screwing the story up. I'm screwing up the, 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 the punchline here. No, 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 no. Okay. So post crown, eventually Ms. S and I moved to San Jose, California. And while we were living in San Jose, somehow Doug got my San Jose phone number and he called and left a message on my answering machine. Cause this was still in the days of the, the landline phone with the plugged in answering machine with a, I don't think I still had a tape at this point. It was like a digital answering machine, but you know how it goes. Um, and so he left a message and was like, Hey man, you know, I could really use that money that I loaned you. Um, here's my phone number. Here's my address. And I was like, Oh, I am going to pay this guy back immediately. And then I realized I had somehow erased the message. I didn't have his phone number. I didn't have his address. Pre-internet, I didn't know how to find him. I don't even know how he found me. Maybe he knew someone that knew me. I had no way of getting a hold of the guy. So in that guy's mind, I just fully ghosted him, fully left him out, hung him out to drive with his $100. So then a few years after that is when I ran into him uh, in Santa Rosa and we hung out. And I was sort of like, yeah, man, I, I'm really sorry. I had that money for you. Um, but... Uh, I just, I, I erased the message. I couldn't get a hold of you. And he's whatever, dude. I, I don't, whatever. You could tell he didn't believe a, a, a word of it. I don't even want it now. No, don't, don't, don't even worry about it. Oh, brutal. Brutal. 
So, Doug, I'm sorry I had the money. I've got the money still. You want it? Hit me up uh, at Sensational Vega on the tweets. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll Venmo you. That's how much times have changed. Anyway, that is all for this week. That is all for Crown Books. Um, Crown Books is no longer with us. I don't even know what's in there now. Uh, I kind of try to avoid the marketplace um, unless I really have to go over there for some bizarre reason. I, I, I used to go to that Target quite a bit when we were still living there, but you can kind of go to the Target and not really pay attention to the rest of the uh, rest of the complex there. Um, in any case, it's me. It's me. It's Gino V with a very special episode 73 signing off, but I do have one piece of special bonus content for you this week. This is something that I had been intending to share with you for months, if not like years, an idea that IC Robots himself had, and I meant to do and meant to do and meant to do and meant to do, and then finally it got to a point where I didn't even know if it was salient to do anymore, but oh, is it salient? This one is a very special piece of content dedicated, if he still listens to the show, to none other than Teen Wundel. So prepare yourself, strap yourself in, and other than that, it's me, it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino V, signing off, but check this out. Wrestling has more than one royal family. as far as we're going to go with this phenomenal tune today because I don't really want to get kicked out of my town home by angry neighbors who are wondering why why this grown man is wailing along to some god-awful new metal tune um, and they don't even know who Cody Rhodes is. But this one goes out to Wondell. This one goes out to everyone out there. God bless Cody Rhodes and freedom. God bless Mr. Trump. I will talk to you next time on the Mr. Sensational Gina Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network.